Um, all right. Well, here we are. We're in session six. We're in the end of February, and we're only in session six. Uh, this is the prepared uh, session. Jesus is the promised Messiah who brings judgment. So we'll be in Luke, if you've forgotten where we've been. We're working our way through Luke as slow as we possibly can. Uh, chapter 3 will be in verses 7 through 18. Um, as we begin this, let's. Uh, I feel the need to rewind and see where we've been. So Luke began his gospel with the interwoven narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. The, Luke starts out at the beginning with dealing with both of them. We heard about the angel's announcements to Zechariah and then the announcement to Mary. We witnessed the births of both the forerunner and the Messiah. So here's, we're, we're getting both of them. Time passes, Jesus grows up in Nazareth. John apparently wanders the wilderness around the Jordan River. Now it is thought, we don't know for sure, but church tradition indicates that John the Baptist, his parents were older, if you remember. It is believed that his, either his parents both died or his father died, at which point he became an orphan and was taken in, the thought is, by the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of ultra-conservative um, Jews that lived in the caves. You would know the, them because that's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written and preserved by a group um, of Essenes that were in the Jordan, in the, dead, in the Dead Sea mountain region. It is thought that he probably lived with them and grew up with them. But at some point, he broke with them and left uh, and did not um, stay and, and hold to their beliefs. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about what started John's ministry. Uh, it's not recorded for us. It's, we're unsure how he came to be in the wilderness preaching the, the message that he was preaching. Um, baptism was a big thing for the Essenes as a group. Uh, they did it often uh, and stuff. And so likely the practice, he took it up uh, clearly... Uh, he, I mean, that's what he was doing out there. We don't know for sure, though. We, we don't have a lot of stuff. So he's wandering in the wilderness, preaching repentance, and doing all that. So now we come to uh, Jesus. So following Augustus, Tiberius um, became Caesar. And he was Caesar for nearly 15 years um, before... Jesus shows up on the scene. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, was the tetrarch um, of Galilee, which a tetrarch, if you didn't know it, is a provincial ruler who shares power with several others, tetra being three. Um, and so there were two of his other brothers that held power, over the domain that had been King Herod the Great's. So they took Herod the Great's area, 
broke it into three, and him, the, the three brothers ruled that area. Um, Herod Antipas wanted to be king of the Jews. He wanted the title that his father had um, and all that. So he was a very motivated individual uh, to do that. John's sermons were designed to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which we just studied back in the fall, um, about the voice of one in the wilderness. He preached to ready the path for the Lord. The mountains in that passage from Isaiah, they were the symbolization of the high and mighty who believed they had no need for God and they would be brought low. Whereas the valleys from those verses represent the poor and lowly who would be raised up because they were humble and would often come to the Lord. Which that's what we're going to see as, as we get into the actual ministry of Jesus is that the, the Pharisees keep coming after him and he just cuts them down at the knees and cuts them down at the knees. And the, the, the poor, the destitute, the, those that they believed were cursed by God because they had infirmities, he's going to raise them up. Um, and that, that's, uh, Luke is going to show us a lot of that as we get into this. Um, John preached a message of repentance and baptism um, and baptized the multitudes who responded. Many came with sincere hearts, eager to seek God. The world at this point is desperate for the Savior. They are feeling the weight of Rome. They're feeling the weight of the religious leaders, um, the taxes are, are crushing them. They're feeling helpless, hopeless, and all that. And John is out there saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so they were desperate. Others were coming to John with impure motives, wanting the validation of being baptized by John without the corresponding repentance. They wanted to look good in front of the people because the masses were buying in. They had to follow suit so that the masses wouldn't turn on them and they would listen to them. The religious leaders were wanting to hold their positions. And in order to do that, they need to look like how everybody thinks they should look. The poor, the destitute, they believed John. They believed the kingdom of his hand. They had a look that they at least believed it, where all they were really wanting to do was exalt themselves. And so they show up, and we're going to see just what John does with them as we get into this today. So there's kind of a, a, a rehash of what we've been talking about. Comments or questions before we move on? All right, very good. Then let's get started. Here we go. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. Somebody go ahead and... Read that for us. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, 
and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, thank you. Fruit. Talks a lot about fruit in the Bible, doesn't it? All right, so this is still um, part one of our outline. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Preparation for the ministry of Jesus. So we're still in the prep. We haven't gotten to this actual ministry yet. Uh, and it starts off today with a warning, a dire warning. Um, we see that uh, John is out preaching the forgiveness of sins. This was a very new idea that uh, sins could be forgiven. The, you would go and have, you would offer a sacrifice to pay for your sins. But the actual forgiveness that you are, that it's all done with, was a, was a new idea. The Jews... Uh, believe that you had to pay the price for your sins. It, it's very orthodox, if you think about it. The Catholic, the Greek, the Russian, all of them. You go, to, you go to confession, and then you're given penance to pay for your sins. Right? I mean, that's what you do. You know, here, go say five Our Fathers and four Hail Marys, and you're, and you're, you know, and that's the payment for your sin. You, you do something. You, you, you give money. Back in the, I mean, before the, um, no, I forgot his name. Wow. Martin Luther, thank you. Before Martin Luther, uh, or during his time, there was Tetzel. I could think of his name, but I couldn't think of Luther. You just, it's crazy. Tetzel was a traveling salesman for the Catholic Church, and he sold indulgences and his tagline was as soon as the money clinks in the in the box your soul is free from the sin that you were paying for i mean that, so the idea of having to pay and if you look at the old testament system depending on what sin you committed or what thing happened to you or what was going on you gave a certain sacrifice you know sometimes it was a a sheep, sometimes it was doves or pigeons. We saw that Mary had to, um, she had a redeemer son, and that was one dove. And she had to be, she had to pay for her cleansing from having a child, and that was one dove. So it cost two doves for them. I mean, so there was, there, the whole system was that way. But here's John. He's out in the wilderness preaching, repent and be forgiven. There's no cost associated. There, there wasn't anything you had to do. This was totally new to the Jews. We think nothing of it. As, as evangelical Christians, we are so familiar with repent 
and you're forgiven. I mean, that's, that's what Christ taught. That's what Scripture teaches. We're familiar, but here's John. This is the first time anybody's offering this, and this is going to lead into, when we get to Jesus, why they were so, when he's offering forgive, when he's forgiving people their sins, nobody could do that but God. And in the Jewish mindset that you, you had to pay for your sins, it requires you to go to the temple. You had to buy an animal unless you had one to bring. Have it slaughtered. The blood poured out and thrown against the altar. And that was the payment for your sin. And you had to do it every time you sinned, which is why the pompousness that, well, I, I don't need to bring an animal. I don't, I don't sin. I'm... The Pharisees were godly. And that's what Christ kept pointing out. It's not just what you do, it's what you think. This is a whole new, it's taking everything that was in the Old Testament and taking it to a new level that you don't understand how offensive you are to God. And so here's John, he's out in the wilderness and he is offering them the chance at forgiveness and there's no payment. This is why the masses are there. Can you imagine? You're, you're a poor person. You don't have a lot of money. You don't have the animals needed in order to make yourself right with God all the time. And here's John offering you the possibility of forgiveness by repenting. Let that sink in for a minute. We were, we were just having a discussion about that around the table last night with my granddaughter. Mm. Interesting. She just accepted a scholarship to... Um, the sales. sales university which is a catholic affiliated and <laughs> they still require them to they have to go to a church the mass, the mass service when is that not sure but, uh, but it's like a requirement they have to do it she has you know they're not christians so she doesn't have any concept of that <laughs> what it's about and why they're doing it so she was asking a lot of questions so i guess it was good for that reason sure <laughs> I just find it interesting. It's kind of empty. Yeah. Well, it, as you realize what Christ has done and that they're still requiring payment, and it's like you're paying for the meal twice. You know, it'd be like you, you going out with your husband and he paid for the dinner, but that wasn't sufficient enough, so you paid for it a second time. Yeah, okay. I, I, it doesn't, yeah. So then we move on and we come to the actual warning, and this is where we get to um, John. The crowds are there, and he turns and looks at them, and he says, you brood of vipers. you got to love that. You snakes. He's talking to those who are there for the wrong reasons. They don't want repentance. They want to appear holy, though. Um, and they claim, what they claimed was, uh, we're the sons of Abraham. And we have to understand the Jewish mindset. For us that are non-Jews, as we are Gentiles, it means little to us. We don't think that way. But they were convinced that because they were the chosen people, they were automatically going to heaven, that they were the ones that God favored. They were saved. They were going to reap all the benefits. The mentality at the time of Christ was is that Gentiles were fuel for hell. We were nothing but cords of wood. Um, that there was, there was no concept of salvation for the Gentiles by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We were, we were nobody. We were nothing. Um, God is just going to wipe us away, 
and they were going to be set up and they were going to rule over all of us and we were going to be treated worse than the slaves of the, of the age of slavery in the United States. I mean, that was their thinking. And John calls them a brood of vipers and he gives them this warning. Who you are is irrelevant. John's like, don't think because you're children of Abraham, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. Which is interesting because as we see how it plays out through history, the Jews reject Christ and they are still rejecting him. I mean, it's a very small group that even today that come to the Lord, that many hold to their Jewish views and values that that's what's going to get them, that that's what that they need to do. Even non-practicing Jews will pay their dues, which is just like paying your, the, the tithe to the temple so that they can be buried properly and stuff because they believe that's what's going to make them right with God in the end. They're still on this, you got to pay to play system. Um, and so John is out there preaching, repent, change the way you live, change the way you think, and you'll be good with God. And it has nothing to do with who you are, that you are the descendant of Abraham. What this meant, well, let me, uh, I'll come to that in a second. Uh, you needed repentance with fruit. And I think this is something we've forgotten in evangelicalism today. I think we've become just like the Jews at the time of John. We're Christians. We go to church. I give my tithe and offering every Sunday. Um, you know, all that. And we've forgotten that it's not just the repentance, but it requires fruit, which means, and I've preached on it several times in church, uh, that we need to be living the right life. I mean, Paul lists more than once the fruits of the Spirit. That's the fruit that John's talking about. The things that come out in our lives, uh, we have to have mercy, and we, we need to be showing love and gentleness and kindness and control and all these things, if they're not evident in our lives, then we're repenting without fruit. It's a show. That's all it is because it's not changing us, which was the whole point of coming to the temple. It was supposed to be the glory of God there because it changes us when we come face to face with him, when we realize who he was. And you think about the people that come in contact with the glory of God and through scripture. They were changed. In Moses' case, it was physical. I mean, he glowed with the glory of God. But these people were changed in dramatic ways as they realized just how humble they are. Isaiah, as he's in the throne room of God, and his declaration that I am a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean thoughts. And, and all that. I mean, he was dramatically changed as he understood who he was was irrelevant in comparison to God and that he needed to change and he needed to be different. That's what he's calling here. Repentance with fruit. The fruit is the, the 
change that takes place. We are not just sorry we got caught for our sins, but we're sorry we did them. And we're going to do something about changing the way we are living our lives so that we're more in line with what God wanted um, us to do. And then finally, the warning part. If you don't change, you're going to burn. Uh, I mean, John, John doesn't spare anything here. Um, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown in the fire. Um, I don't know that you can get any other idea from that. The idea here is, is that these people were doing what they, were, what they thought they should be doing, um, which was tithing their mint and, you know, all the little nuances of the law. They thought that doing that was what it was. But on the backside, they were cheating people. And we're going to see that in a minute. Um, they were cheating people out of money, out of land, they were using the court system to get rich on widows and orphans by suing them and taking uh, what belonged to them because they didn't have, you know, the widows had no husband or father figure to go to court. Women couldn't do it. They couldn't do it on their own. And so they were abusing the system for their own selfish gain. On the other hand, going, well, see how godly I am. Look, I'm tithing my mint. Look, here's 10% of my mint. I'll even throw in an extra leaf just in case. Uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And John is warning them that's not it. it, it it's here. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It isn't your outward appearance. It's what's going on upstairs. Your thought process. Are you being merciful? You know, maybe, well, you know, mercy is, is that, okay, she owes you whatever it is. Her husband rang up this debt, he died, now she owes you. Well, mercy would be to say, you know what, you don't have anybody to provide for you. I'm going to write it off. Or you can get it to me when you can. As opposed to going and taking them to court and saying, they owe me and I want her land and booting her out. Um, that's unmerciful. That's, it's, we're, not, we're called to take care of those people in the Old Testament. They weren't doing it. Comments or questions? Yeah, go ahead. Um, just what you were saying before about um, change. I've heard stories where people had like near-death experiences, and they say when they come back, they're totally changed because they feel they had some form of a contact with God afterwards. I don't know. That's... <laughs> I don't know, that's just stuff that I've heard or like TV shows. That, you know, they said they're not afraid anymore. Well, I don't know. That's, I don't know what they experienced, but I just... I've not had one, so I, I can't speak to that. <laughs> All right. What do we got? Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Somebody... The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And ye, what shall we do? And he said to them, 
Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with the wages. All right. Thanks. So we get the we had the warning, turn or burn. Um, and now we get the response of the people. And now I, socialists love to come to this passage where they where it is, well, if you've got if you've got to give up one. Well, okay. But it's the the idea is that's not what's going on here. It isn't those who have have to give it up. It's the idea of mercy. He's trying to communicate that we need to be looking to people we can help, not the moochers. Um, if you can, if you can work, you need to be working. Uh, the old the, the scripture is very clear that the sluggard, the sloth. Uh, isn't worth anything. Um, but the idea is, is that those who really are destitute and have not, and we have to understand their world had huge amounts of poor. They'd lost their lands because of the taxes. The Romans were great for taxing people and then coming in and declaring their land forfeit for taxes. And those that were in power, those that were part of the Senate, were tax exempt for paying for land. So they would come in, pick up your land on a fire sale for tax for lack of taxes, take the land, and then either you would be forced to work the land for next to nothing, or you were booted off. And then you were so you were wandering poor. So we're not talking about people who were just didn't have anything. They had not, it had been taken from them. So we're talking about a very different, it wasn't that they just didn't have anything. They were incapable of getting anything because their method of um, employment was taken away from them. Um, and so there, there wasn't anything they could do. They must have been very bitter and angry. Yes. Which is why when we get to looking at Jesus, why the crowds, the masses are so enthralled with him, um, feeding the 5,000 and stuff because they had no ability of their own to do it because it had been taken away. It was, uh, the circumstances were, were awful. It wasn't that they just, they were farmers. Without farm, what could they do? I mean, they didn't have any other trade or skill or anything else. And there weren't, there weren't jobs like there are today. I mean, businesses and things were passed down father to son, father to son. When you would lose it, there wasn't anything, you, all you could do is wander because you'd be kicked off the land. You couldn't squat there anymore. So they were, they're, they're sleeping rough in the countryside, out in the desert areas, because nobody, you couldn't farm it. There wasn't anything you could do with the land. And so they're just hanging, they're there. Would any of that come under that year of Jubilee that they get it? Under the Jewish system, yes, they would have. And that was the whole point of the year of Jubilee where land was returned to the family. But the Romans didn't do that. The Romans didn't believe in that. So there was no more year of Jubilee. So the, the land didn't go back to the family so that they could work it and all that. Um, all those rules were gone. And the thing is, is the Pharisees and Sadducees, all those people 
went with the Roman system. And so they were acquiring the lands themselves and keeping it and booting the people out and using it for themselves. And they, were hire, they weren't hiring people. They were using slaves to work the land that they were acquiring. So the response is to take care of those with nothing. It isn't our world today. We, we, we can't look at that and say, well, see, it's a socialistic system. No, these were people who were truly destitute and poor. They had no ability to make uh, money for it. And so that there was a true need. They weren't just the, oh, I hurt my back. I can't work ever again nonsense. <laughs> um, these people's... Right. Well, yeah, the, the, the gleaning of the fields was the, the, was the system. But you had to go out and do it. Um, but if you had two tunics and you knew somebody who you know, they'd lost everything and you did nothing about it when you could, that's the idea that's going on. We, we just don't have, in our world today, we just don't have a lot of that. Um, because there are programs, there are places you can go and all that. And it wasn't, it wasn't the government took care of them. See, nowadays, it's the, government, the whole idea of socialism is the government comes in, takes what you have, and redistributes it to those that it feels are in need. And that's the problem. This system requires you, the individual, to recognize people in need, which means you've got to be part of this, your, your community. Thank you, Karen. Your community. You've got to be part of your community and know what's going on. Which means then you have to know people like this. And then you have to decide in your heart. See, this is where the fruit comes in. You decide to be merciful. Not the government who just comes in and says, okay, give me everything you got and we'll take care of it. That's not mercy. That's not fruit. That isn't the fruit of the Spirit when the government does it at the sword point or gun point nowadays. But when you look and go, you know what? That person's got, it's really gone bad for them. Let me help. And you offer them whatever it is. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Taking care of those in need may mean helping them find a job. Some people don't know how to do that. Um, there are those who, who really struggle with trying to find a job. Or, you know, they, they just don't have, they may be good at something, but they just don't have the wherewithal. Um, or it could be that if you're a business individual, that you create jobs in your business. Um, there, there are people I know who don't want to grow their business because they just don't want to be bothered. They're a one-man shop, and they could do more, but that will require work and effort on my part, and then I'd have employees, and I just don't want to do it. Well, you know, that's being selfish. I, I don't want to do it because it's too much work for me. And yet there are people who need jobs that you could be hiring. See, there's, there, there's that end of it too, is that if we're looking at our community going, you know what, I can provide a better service and I can, and I can provide jobs for people who have skill and all that who are suffering in this economy and you go ahead and do it, uh, you know, there, there's a, that's, that's being fruitful. That's taking care. Yeah, you're not giving away your money. You're, not giving, you're providing an opportunity, which is also good. We see it with the tax collectors. Stop cheating people. We all wish the IRS wouldn't cheat people, right? The reality is, is that our IRS is nothing like this. 
The way the system worked in the ancient world, it was a bidding war. Tax collectors would get together and they were offered the contract to collect taxes, just like they do for local here in Pennsylvania. And what they do is they, they bid on who can provide how much to the government and they win the contract and then they go out and collect it. Well, they owe X amount that they promised and they can collect anything they want and everything over that amount is theirs. And so they would go out and they would basically, well, your tax bill is X. Well, this is what the Roman government charges and then I'm gonna slap my fee on and then I'm going to, you know, that's what my, the, my head tax collector wants. But I need a couple bucks myself, so throw in an extra denarius and we'll, we'll call it good. See, they were cheating the people out of what they actually owed because the government already took a whole bunch. And they were cheating people and the tax collectors became wealthy because there would be Roman guards there. You're not going to pay your taxes? Brutus, take them. And they take them out behind the tree and shake them. Literally. Find that extra coin. Uh, and stuff. And so that was what, you know, was going on. They were cheating people. And John's saying, don't do it. You take your wage, you collect what you're required to collect and not a farthing more. And that was it. And they're like, but, but that means I'll be poor. I won't, I won't get anything. Well, that's the way it works. Don't cheat the people. And then the soldiers Live on your wages. Soldiers were paid, just like they are today. But soldiers had authority and brute strength and everything else. And so what would happen would be somebody would come to him and say, you know what, that guy took my property. Or he's, he's a rabble rouser because I want to steal his property. I want to buy it. I want to get it at a discount. And so they'd get him arrested like we've never heard that one, right? So they bring false charges. Now the soldiers know. They know what's going on. Let's face it. The beat cops, they know what's going on in their beats. They know the business owners. They know that. Some guy wants to move in to that business and this guy won't give it up or won't sell the building and all that. So now you start, you start paying the bribe. Hey, go, go run up some charges on this guy so that I can get his property, so that he'll go out of business. You look the other way while we bust up his shop. Sounds like the old mob protection racket, right? That's what was going on. You know, the, the, the Italians didn't, they, they invented it. They were doing it back in Jesus' day. It has, yeah, the whole protection racket. Soldiers, live with your wages. Don't make false accusations. Don't look the other way. Do your job. People were interested. They wanted to know what they were supposed to do. Remember, this is a new idea. The whole idea of repentance and forgiveness is a new idea. We, we often forget that as we read through this. Well, sure, of course. But to the Jews, this was new. It was novel. Uh, the idea that I can be forgiven by God without going and offering sacrifices just by living the right way, by repenting of what I have done and not doing it anymore, changing, was new. So soldiers, live with your wages. Tax collectors, quit cheating people. Take care of those with nothing. Change the way you think. Change the way you live. Realize that you are responsible for the people in your community.
whether they've got everything they could possibly need or they have nothing. You're responsible for them. Watch out. Be the fruit of the Spirit towards them. Comments, questions? Go ahead. Sorry, I'm the talkative one today. But it just reminded me of a story. I had a friend, Sabina, God bless Sabina. She um, lived over in Germany when the Russians came in and took over her town. And it was always interesting listening to the stories of you know these people. But Sabina said, it just gave me a different insight. You know, She said there would be Russian soldiers, kind of like what you're saying, just standing there. And she was a young girl of 18 at the time, and they could just point to you and say, go over here. And it just opened my eyes to like, oh my God, here's a young girl, and here's like this soldier. Who's going to stop him if he just says, go in this corner, and he's going to rape her? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of like opened my eyes, and you're saying, I'm like, oh my God, this could be the same, you know, these soldiers say, you do this, but... So it was just happening not too long ago, lifestyles like that, just listening to Sabina and her stories when... You know. It's still going on today. It's not just back then. Most of it is the reason our forefathers wrote the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. That was the whole point of the Second Amendment was that the individual has the right to defend themselves because that very thing, the soldiers, if they're the only ones with weapons, have all the authority and power to do whatever they want to do. And we see it in, particularly in the African countries. Um, what is it? The Hoko... Who, uh, yeah, Hoko Barnum is a prime example of it as they have taken hundreds of women just off the street and turned them into harems because they have the weapons and, and the power to do it. And we see it happening so much over there. That was, why the, that was the whole point of the Second Amendment um, was that we would be able to defend ourselves. Moving on. All right. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquestionable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Thank you. Divisions. We've had a warning. We had the response of the people. And now John is going to talk about division. Um... Which is interesting as we look at this passage. It's a division being um, a separation of those who believe, those who have responded correctly, and those who haven't. Um, First, we see that the people are concerned with who John is. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that everybody's been waiting for? And I I, I can picture this. Remember, John is dressed in rough clothing. He's wearing camel hair, camel skins. I don't know if you've ever seen a camel, but uh, it, it's, yeah. I mean, it, so he's got this rough, furry, 
leatherish clothing on with a belt to his waist. Um, he's not looking. He's not looking very presidential. You know what I'm saying? Locust legs hanging out of his beard. Yeah, he's eating locusts. He's eating honey. Uh, he's looking rough. I mean, in our day and age, uh, you know, he's not very presidential, but he doesn't look like the Messiah. They're expecting this king, and they're looking at John. Is he? This can't be. Now he's in the desert, and you know, like I said, he may or may not have been part of the Qumran Essenes that were there. Uh, but they look at those people and they're, they're the whack jobs. They don't live in the cities and all that. And I mean, that's part of what's going on later on. When we get to Jesus. We'll talk more about it. He's from Galilee. And they, I mean, they, the question gets asked, you know, could anything good come out of Galilee? They're hillbillies. They're hicks. They're country folk. Their, their accent was horrible to the sophisticated. Think of Jerusalem as New York. And that the Pharisees and Sadducees are the guys that work Wall Street and Broadway. They're the uppity up, upper crust. All of that. They, they've got the right walk, the right talk. I mean, we're talking the, you know, you, you have last year's clothes on. Ew. I mean, that's, that's so last year. Those people... That's who they were. And here comes these Galileans. And they're, they're like from the backwoods of Tennessee with their flannel and overalls walking the street. Well, that's, that's, Jesus's, that's Jesus's crew. You know, they're in Times Square dining at the uh, Ritz-Carlton dressed like that. But here's, this is John. Now, John, John is even farther out than that. Wearing camel hair. Arkansas. Yeah, he's like, we're, we're talking, yeah, Arkansas. I, I mean, we're talking right off the farm. And so they're looking at him. Are you the Messiah? No, tell me you're not the Messiah. Please don't embarrass us like that. Um, because that's not what they were, that's not what their expectation was. They expected, because of their mentality, whoever the Messiah would be would be blessed by God, which meant wealth. It meant power, the right clothes, the right speech, the right look, all the hair in place. You know, the, the, you know, the right pedigree. This would be God's guy, right? Not, which is funny because it's totally contrary to everything you see in the Old Testament. I don't know how they got that way, but they did. I mean, Moses was God's guy. Moses was a shepherd in, in the Sinai Peninsula. Guy lived with sheep. And he was 50 years, or uh, not 50, he was um, 80 years old. So, I mean, he's not young, and he's a shepherd. He's not well-spoken uh, or anything. And then we come, we, we come farther on. David, David's a shepherd boy. Again, shepherds didn't have high standing in society. They weren't rich, they weren't powerful. He's the youngest brother. He's not even the firstborn, which in the Jewish system, you know, he was like, what, seventh, something like that? It's like, he's just a kid. He's a shepherd. Come on, give me that. And yet he's the most powerful king to live, right? We, we get all these guys. Solomon was more what they would be expecting. All right, now he grew up in the palace and all that. But so we see the people that God chooses weren't were usually the, the high and mighty 
in, in the lake. Now, Isaiah was. Isaiah was a court, was somebody from court, we, we believe. But usually they, they were the lowly. And here's John. He's looking really lowly. Are you the Messiah? No. No. He's the backwater, lowliest looking guy dressed in camel. And his response, his response, one is coming and I am not worthy. Not worthy. I, the choice of words that Luke makes here is amazing. Worth. He's as low as they come. He's a free man. But I mean, he's so rough living out in the middle of nowhere all by himself. I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of the guy who's coming after me. If this guy's not, if, if, if this guy's not worthy to untie the sandals, who is? I mean, he's so low. The untying of the sandals was the youngest and lowest slave in the house's job to take off people's shoes. And he's not, it's not that he's unwilling. It's not that he's incapable. He's not worthy of the lowest position in a rich man's house. And he's living as rough as they possibly can. And he, he's, he doesn't have the worth, the value to do it. This is the guy who is coming. And he's bringing with him his winnowing fork. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen how they do this. Um, we're quite removed from uh, being farming people. I, I've actually seen what they do. When they bring in the wheat, they beat it on the ground to make all the kernels fall off and they get rid of the shafts and all that. But it also leaves the, the outer hull, the, like peanuts. You know, you got to shell peanuts. Well, it does that, and they do that by when they beat it and it breaks apart. But you end up with the shells of the wheat. You don't want them. They're very light. And so they would do it on the top of a hill where you'd get a nice light breeze, and they'd, put it, they'd be in a sheet, and they throw it up in the air, and they would blow the chaff, the, the shell, away. They, use a, they, they call it a winnowing fork. You know, it just throws up the wheat. So that's what he's going to do. And all of it blows off to the side and they burn it because it's chaff. It's not worth anything. It has no value. And the blanket then is full of the wheat and they just pour it in, take it down and grind the, grind the flour with it. That's what he's talking about doing. He's got his winnowing fork. He's going to throw up everybody. And those who don't meet the standard are going to blow away. And those who are, are of value will be what's left. And they're going to be burned up. That's what he's talking about. John says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not going to do this. This isn't me. They came out there so that they could be seen. So that they could uh, be recognized for who they were. The rich, the powerful, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. All of these people, they came out there for recognition. And they're like, are you the Messiah? Because they, don't, they want to make sure that they're seen by the Messiah because they want to be set up as the rulers of the people. They want position. So they come out. And he's like, I'm not him. Not only am I not him, I can't even untie his shoes. You think you're important? 
I'm the guy leading the way, and I'm not even qualified to untie his shoes. I'm not the Messiah. The one who's coming is so much greater, and he's going to decide. Not me. Don't play up to me. Don't suck up to me. I'm not the deciding factor. I can't speak for you. Because that's what you would do is you'd suck up to some sophisticant and then he would whisper in the ear of some ruler, hey, this is a good guy. I owe him a favor. You know, give him whatever it is he's asking for. That's what they're trying to do. It's the swamp. <laughs> These are the guys that are in the swamp and they see a change coming and they're trying to suck up to the guy announcing the change. And they're trying to suck up to John. And John's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't make the decision. He's trying to tell him, I have no say in the process. I am so lowly in this kingdom of God that's coming, I can't untie the shoes of the guy who's coming. Don't suck up to me. Don't play up to me. I'm nobody. Don't, don't look at me for what's going on. That's what's going on here. They, they've come out to see this forerunner and they're trying to decide who he is and where he fits so they could figure out where they could fit. And if I could get in with this guy, then he can get me in with the guy who's coming, who's going to make all the decisions. And maybe I can get some position, some power, some authority. And John's telling him, I'm not that guy. I can't even untie the guy's shoes. I am just out here telling you the way it's going to be. All right. Comment, question. Bring a little perspective to this passage. All right, let's see what we can take away from this then this morning. First of all, judgment awaits those who live in disobedience to God. That was the main point of John's message. If you are not living right, if you're not producing fruit, Judgment's coming. Fire. It's going to burn. You are not going to stand. God ain't playing that game. Secondly, repentance is demonstrated through godly living. It's something we have got to remember. It isn't about what we do in view of people. It's how we live. It's how we think. It's our world view. It isn't that, hey, Sunday morning, here I am in my nice shiny suit, sitting in my little pew, and I'm here, and all that, hoo-ha. And then I go home, and I do whatever I want to do. It's what business deal am I in? What, how am I dealing with people at work? Do I have employees? Do I treat them fairly? Do I treat them well? Do I offer mercy? We live in a world that's very short on mercy. We're all about justice. That's a big key word right now. What's just? What's right? Well, justice is balanced by mercy, and it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's, it's not just that. I mean, we see it all through, even the Old Testament, to love mercy. Because it doesn't come to us. Justice comes easy to us. We want to be, we want to be just. He owes me. 
Repentance is living, is godly living, which means the fruits of the Spirit. Self-control. Maybe you need to step back. Think about what you're actually doing to somebody's life before you destroy it for some minor infraction, even though it's the 10th or 20th time they've done it. Where's mercy? Sure, righteousness fits in there, and, and that's, that's also one of the things. Um, but we need, we, need to be, we need to be consciously thinking about it, and that's what we're being called to. Sometimes the right thing to do is to fire a guy or sue a guy or wh- whatever it is. Sometimes that is the right thing to do, but sometimes it isn't, and we need to, we need to be thinking through that. What does it mean to live godly? We need to be figuring that out minute by minute, day by day, decision by decision, instead of just reacting. And then finally, our submission to Jesus determines our eternal destiny. Are we submitted to him? I'm not talking about being a fan. There are a lot of people who are fans of Jesus. They're the ones running around Telling everybody, you just need love. Jesus is love, and you need to love. Jesus would love those people. Yes, he would, but that doesn't mean that he won't send them to hell. I mean, it's true. He loves the whole world, but part of the world is going to hell. He has told us that. He has told people that. He loves them enough to send them to hell. Are we in submission to him? Is he what drives us? Is he what makes our determinations? Are we submitted? Or are we just fans? Let's pray. Lord, the world hasn't changed much since John was here. We still have swamps. We still have people who think that they can win positions And Lord, all you want is our submission. You want us to submit enough to you to live the way you wanted us to live. To do the things that you told us to do. To love, to show mercy, to have righteousness, self-control. All those fruits, Lord, that are so hard to show in our lives. Lord, help us. Help us, not just this week, but every day. And as we make decisions and live our lives, that we do it the way you would have us to do it. In your name we pray. Amen.